Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. I guess the best way to start would once again be to have you introduce yourself. I'm Alina Pirak, and I'm the author of The Spirit of Colonial Williamsburg, Ghosts and Interpreting the Recreated Past. Excellent. And you are a professor of history at Southern Georgia University, correct? Georgia Southern University. Georgia Southern University. Okay. And The Spirit of Colonial Williamsburg, although you discuss ghost tourism quite a bit in it, it seems fair I think, and correct me if you disagree, to say that it's really more of a history of the kind of development of historical restoration and living museums during the 20th century with Williamsburg as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Williamsburg is a case, is this very, very prominent case study for the the development of place-based restoration and, and recreation. And really, I think, does does a good job of of illustrating how that sort of created a foundation for living history. Because when Colonial Williamsburg is created, you know, when it's restored, when it goes from the city of Williamsburg, Virginia to Colonial Williamsburg, the recreation, it's not a living history museum. It's just a restoration. It's just a recreation. It's just buildings and plants and some coach. So there's some horses and, and, and coaches, but it's not a living history that hadn't existed yet. So I use Colonial Williamsburg as this case study to sort of illustrate how that process happens. And in my research, what I've discovered is that a big key to this transition uh, and this development is the idea of ghosts and the idea of hauntings really sort of lubricates that engine. And that really starts with one of the founders of uh, Colonial Williamsburg as an institute, W.A.R. Goodwin or Godwin? Godwin. Now, we discussed him a bit in the previous episode, but you actually give a really good description of him in this book. So I'd like to talk about him a little bit more, if that's all right. Sure. He seems like the sort of interesting character. He's a little bit out of time from what I gather, but at the same time, he's very well aware of what's happening around him, and he seems to be trying to contend with that. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, he is a, even in in the 20s, a kind of retro guy. He's sticking with a lot of older things, a lot of older ideas, and is trying to apply them to his contemporary world. And he finds a, a lot of success in them. A big part of that, of course, is the ghost stories, right? And there, there's photos of him, but, but he's the guy in the 20s standing with a group of other men, and he's the only one still wearing that detachable collar, right? Everyone else has adopted the shirt that has the collar attached and you just, you throw in the wash. He's still wearing that, that detachable collar. He is old school, right? So one of the things that he's doing is he's using older ideas and applying them to the contemporary world. And you see that in a big way through his use of the rhetoric of ghosts, a little bit of background. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So he, he comes to Williamsburg as a young guy in 1903 and he's 
brought in, he's an uh, Episcopalian minister. He's brought in at Bruton Parish Church to fix it, like fix it architecturally. They're trying to restore it. The roof is given in and to fix the parish. The people who go to this church are fighting amongst themselves. Their previous leader, there was rumors swirling around him of alcohol abuse and just perishes at each other's throat. So they kick him out. They bring Godwin in and they're like, fix it. Use your fundraising skills to get the money to fix the church and bring the people together. So he had been doing fundraising as a young man throughout his whole life. So he's like, I got this. Let's fix this church. Within that process, he's doing the paperwork. He's running around. He's doing this stuff. The parishioners are coming to his house and they're knocking on his door and they're like, hi, I'm so-and-so. Let me tell you what's up. Let me tell you what these other people have done. And and they essentially try to like give him all the hot gossip and like see what side of this conflict he's on. And he gives them time to say their piece. And then he asks them, uh, you know, what were you doing in town during the Civil War? And essentially what he does is he's switching the conversation. They They want to talk about all the hot gossip stuff and they're sort of infighting. And he is sort of reframing the conversation to this time when the people of the city were kind of hunkered down together during this battle of Williamsburg during the Civil War. And what he ends up doing really successfully is getting the parish to sort of come back together again over their shared experiences that are much older than their recent infightings. And through the process of talking with these people and asking them about their experiences with the war, their experiences afterwards, he begins to sort of pick up and become this sort of, not collector in that he's writing it down, but sort of this source of local ghost stories because the locals are telling him their history. And within that, they're also telling him their ghost stories. He then sort of begins to develop this appreciation for history as told through this idea of hauntings. And it's a very common thing for the time period. In the early 19-teens, there were all of these folks going around drawing up biographies of old homes. You have a really excellent chapter on them in the book. They're essentially doing very similar things to what Godwin was. They're, they're asking people, like, tell me about your history. And the homeowners are saying, well, the house was uh, here during the revolution. And we know that for sure because there's a ghost of a French soldier upstairs. So they're, they're talking about their history. They're, they're talking about their relationship with the past using ghost stories. So by the 1930s, Godwin is still sort of bringing this up, right? He's, he's still Mr. Talks about ghosts. He's still talking about hauntings. Uh, and that really makes him kind of attractive to some folks, but really unattractive to the more sort of university trained professionals that are hired for the restoration. So what starts out in the, the early 20s and then certainly the, the 1900s as being this way to sort of connect people with the past and present by talking about ghosts or using a rhetoric of haunting becomes really, really outdated by the later 30s. Because then no one wants nobody wants to hear the ghosts anymore. They want professional. They want an authoritative restoration, not something that's speaking to the heart in the way that a lot of these ghost stories did. He sort of gets outdated. And at first that was very charming. And then it, people are just like, we're not doing that anymore. That's old. We're not doing old anymore. There's a through line in this book that I just I found both frustrating and fascinating. You have a section at the end, you title Coda, where you make the point that really what people were looking for, they kept calling it emotional, but it was really human connection to the past that they were looking for. And it seems like at multiple points, the administration of Colonial Williamsburg is shown that that's absolutely what is necessary and that the public will absolutely accept it and it won't 
you know, reflect badly. And then they refuse to do it until some usually economic thing forces them to. And I, yeah. I just, it's like bashing your head against a brick wall hearing about this. Yeah, it is. It's, it's wild. Cause so Godwin convinces John D. Rockefeller to pay for this, this, this restoration. John D. Rockefeller, wealthiest man in America, he wants everything to be authoritative and professional. And so he hires professional researchers, professional archaeologists, professional architectural historians, and they have a very specific vision of what a restored 18th century city should be. And it's informed by what they can find in archival records and archaeological records, not oral history, not ghost stories. They're like, no more with this Godwin stuff, no more with this ghost. This is going to be scientific. And it is a decade before the space race, but you still have that 20th century hubris of science can bring it back. Science can do all things. So they're walking into this like human achievement. You know, we're going to make this, we're going to use science and we're going to make this awesome through science and we're unstoppable, right? So they completely sort of disregard that emotional element that made restoring the city so attractive. That talk of ghosts that Godwin had used, they're like, we're not doing that anymore. And then by the time they open up their doors, they're confused at why other people aren't as amazed with what they have created as they are. Because Colonial Williams, there's multiple different ways to visit Colonial Williamsburg today. But early on, if you didn't know the process that created this place, the process that was necessary with all the research, with all the archaeology, then you're just looking at old houses and old interiors. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it's really boring. And there's records of people just, uh, not, uh, they're not getting it. It's going way over the guest heads. Even the the interpreters began to get very frustrated. And and these are early interpreters. So they're they're wearing colonial dresses, but they're 20th century people. They're, you know, Maud and Sally, right? And they're getting frustrated because they're like, the guests don't get it. And they're not asking good questions and they don't know what they're looking at. And so Colonial Williamsburg begins to hire consultants to come and check stuff out, to follow around the guests and find out what's up. And they do it, it throughout the 40s, in the 50s. And all of them come back with essentially the same thing is that you need something emotional. You need to speak to people's emotions. The managers at Colonial Williamsburg are taking in this information and just getting it wrong all the time. And they're trying some things and they kind of hit the mark, but they don't hit the mark. So they put together a visitor center because they're like, okay, People need an introduction to this place, right? They need to know what they're walking into. They put together this information center and they put together this movie, Williamsburg, The Story of a Patriot, which is still running. You can go and watch it in Williamsburg today. You could go on YouTube and watch it too. Hmm. It peoples the city, right? It's filmed within Colonial Williamsburg. The actors are in costume. They're using the restored city in a way that guests don't get the opportunity to see. So they're like opening and closing the shutters. There's chickens in the street and it's on like a market day. All of these scenes that guests in the 50s and 60s would not have seen are now in this film. So I, I argued that it gives people a kind of like mental phantoms. They now have scenes in their head that they can go to downtown and sort of replay like, oh, we're in this tavern. And I remember this scene where George Washington cracked a walnut with his thumb, right? So they're, they're getting these images, but that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to like pay enough attention in the video to remember it, bring it back downtown, and then do that sort of imagination, right? You, you need to sort of engage with your own imagination. And for many adults, that's a very difficult thing. After childhood, that's not something you are often engaging with. So it hits the mark for some people. It doesn't hit, hit the mark for others. And advisors keep saying, 
emotion, bring emotion, bring, bring emotion. And they don't really get to the point where they are having that emotion until they bring first person interpreters to town. These are people who are dressing in 18th century outfits and they are adopting the identity of 18th century people. It's much more personal, right? So you have people dressed in 18th century clothes talking about their experiences within these buildings and that emotional experience begins to develop. And of course, there's problems with that too, but they begin to finally get it because for years and years, they were very unsure about that. They were very unsure of how one could bring emotion to a building because for the people who put together the buildings, who took care of the buildings, that was emotional for them because that's so cool. It's so cool that they could do this research and use these historical trades, find out what an 18th century home builder, the tools they would use and use them. Like, that's so cool. But if you don't know that stuff, if you're, if you're not clued into historical archeology, span if you're not clued into any of that, you're just in a building. So it's, it's this big divide between sort of really how professionals and how the public are interpreting this site that makes it really difficult to be like, whose understanding of emotion are we talking about? Because they're not on the same page with that either. I think that you described it in the previous uh, episode as a deeply nerdy undertaking. And if you were one of the really yeah. nerdy people, you got it. I've got a quote here. Uh, you quote a former hostess. Uh, this is before the living history period. They were dressed in more or less revolutionary era clothing, but they were not playing yeah. the characters as describing how at the beginning, the guests were in the upper education bracket. But by the 1950s, they included more plain people who did not bring much education with them. I kept thinking, isn't it your purpose to be an education facility? Right? Yeah. Isn't that it, your job? <laughs> especially for our 21st century eyes to see something like that, because we exist in a world where people who work at historical sites, by and large, imagine themselves as public history educators. Mm -hmm. And they understand that they're there for the public, right? They are there to translate all the stuff that's happening in academia, all of these arguments and discussions, and translate it into a way that is both coherent and meaningful for the common person. And we see during this, this time period that we are way before that. We, we are in this period of interpretation that's more reminiscent of like a frustrated school mom. And she's like, why don't these children learn? But yeah, there's because there was such a stress of authority and accuracy in the restoration and throughout the institution, there was a sense of like high dignity, right? Which is not to say that interpreters don't have dignity today, but there was mm -hmm. sort of a, a very high sense of self. So having then to talk with people who were just coming there out of like patriotic reasons, like they're just, it's, it's the fifties, you love America, you're gonna go to Colonial Williamsburg with no information. The guides found that so frustrating in the early years when they first began. And, and a lot of these women stayed on for a very long time. So in the early years, they are under enormous pressure. They don't want to be fools, right? They're, they have gotten a position, a low-level position, but a position within this, this project sponsored by John D. Rockefeller. And they are surrounded by all these university-trained professional men, usually. And they are these women that have been allowed to run these tours. And they are terrified. There's, there's accounts where they're like, I made a fool of myself. This is horrible. Like, I'm going to I'm going to ruin everything and everyone's going to think I'm stupid. So they're sort of coming up as interpreters under this immense pressure to hold up the dignity of the institution. So by the time that they are senior 
hostesses, they're now dealing with a public that they're no longer having to worry if the if the guest is going to know more than them. They're now at this point where they're like, I spent days learning this stuff and you know nothing. Like, I, I think that they were in, in the early years more accustomed to having guests who would challenge them. I read so-and-so's book, did, did you? And so by the 50s, the people that they're dealing with aren't really sparring with them. They're more like, oh, who was the president in the 18th century? And they're like, what? So there, it's it's this combination of, again, just not successfully tapping into what guests actually want from this site and what they need to understand it. It seems like when the museum does finally give in to things, they very often seem to overcompensate. Like a great example, I think, is you discuss several essentially outdoor interactive plays that occur where they recreate events that happened during the mid 1770s, which uh, first off sounds like it'd be fantastic to go and participate. And I'd love to do that. But it also seems like they went from, we're not going to even speculate as to what somebody from this time period might reasonably have thought of thing X to let's all get out there and pull everybody into a revolutionary activity with not a lot of steps in between. Yeah, once they developed first-person interpretation, it took a very small amount of time before they went massively emotional. So when the first-person interpreters first came to town, they were very limited, right? Because they, they want to have the same authority, the same accuracy as the restorations. So they're sticking exclusively to the written, rec- the written record. And what that does is it limits what your character can say. It limits who your character can be, right? So you have a lot of wealthy white men. 50% of the population in Williamsburg is not going to be represented because they didn't have access to reading and writing, or many of them didn't. So you have a really limited interaction of the population of Williamsburg. That, of course, is a problem because if you're you're presenting the city as it's, it's the past, right? You can go visit the past, and yet the past is just full of a bunch of rich white guys. Eh, something something weird happened, right? <laughs> that's not accurate. That's not true. They begin to develop different techniques to maintain accuracy and to broaden their cast of characters, right? So we see the development of the African-American Interpretation Department, and their job is to curate and create these shows or these sort of interactive events that include slavery, right? So they, they, they have African-Americans from the Tidewater who are hired to this project to perform as enslaved people, which is a huge undertaking, especially within the United States, where there's this long history of enslaved people being performed just horribly, really, really offensively. Blackface and minstrel shows, like there's far more performance of enslaved people that's degrading and bad and just insensitive than there was performances that are humanizing and coming from really a a good and not mocking place. So they have their whole, they have a whole department just dedicated to like making it right, doing a good job, making sure that there's humanity and there's heart. And in order to do this, you need a bit of educated conjecture. So you need to take in information, not just from Williamsburg, but from urban areas that had enslaved folks in the 18th century, take that all in, get journals of people who could write, bring that in and create characters that aren't necessarily the exact people who lived in Williamsburg, but they are people whose characters are written in a way that it is perfectly reasonable for someone like them to have 
lived in Williamsburg. So you start there, right? So with both sort of the broader first-person interpretation department and the African-American first-person interpretation department, over time, by like the 1990s, you're getting a much more personal, much more emotional interpretation, right? They're, they're gonna be talking about their stresses. They're gonna be talking about the problems that might arise during the revolution. Like someone gonna lose their business, the sort of trade with England is messing up their investments, or if their enslaver dies, is their whole family gonna get torn apart? So you're getting a much more real experience of Colonial Williamsburg. They had gone through what essentially amounted to a, a master's program just through the study that their job required at Colonial Williamsburg. They've read the monograph, they've done the research, and they're feeling that their portrayal of enslavement is not accurate. Like it's, it's not wrong, but it's not the whole picture, right? So I think it's 1994, the African-American Interpretation Department says, we're gonna put on a slave auction. We're gonna do this because this is real and emotional and deeply significant part of enslaved folks' lives is the reality that if your enslaver passes away, you are property and you and your whole family can be sold away from each other to pay off his debts. And that's essentially what the plan was. And they do deep research and they plan it and they're feeling really good about it. They're like, we got this, we're gonna do it and it's gonna show people what slavery was like and it'll be serious and it'll be emotional and they will understand enslavement on this level that they hadn't before. Well, word gets out about the performance and the local area just cannot handle it. They're like, this is wildly inappropriate. And the day of, there's about 2000 people in Williamsburg in the, the historic area to protest, to say this is, no one should do this, this is horrible. And it's mixed crowd, right? There's a huge group of the NAACP that, that, that comes in. You have like old school, like civil rights guys are there, like old grandpa types. And they're like, you can't be doing this. And again, we see this divide of like what the interpreters intended and how the audience is seeing it. Because the interpreters are thinking, we've done all the research, this is accurate. And this, you, you can't have a realistic portrayal of the past in Williamsburg without this. And the audience is saying, no one wants to see this. And you can't put on a performance about something that's so heartbreaking. A huge, huge blow up. And they, they, they do eventually get to do the performance and the people in the audience say like, no, it was well done. And we, we understand what you were doing, but never do this again. And they don't, they don't do it. I, and I think still to this day that they, the interpretive staff haven't done an auction of, of people, largely because of the pushback that people just didn't want to see that. Not that they were trying to say it didn't happen or that it wasn't true, but more that they didn't see Colonial Williamsburg as the place to do it. Because there's movies and film like Roots, which is a few decades beforehand, showed really emotional and gruesome scenes, but people could watch it in sort of the intimacy of their homes by the, by the 90s, but in this very, very public place. And in this place that was becoming more of an entertainment place than the older version of itself back in the, the, the 30s and 40s. For many folks, they're looking and they're like, this, this amusement park, like a, a lame amusement park that has no ride, this, this amusement park making a show about the horrors of slavery. 
that sounds horrible, right? If you see Colonial Williamsburg as an entertainment place and not as a place for learning, you're not going to want that to happen. We see emotion obtained. Emotion is deep, real, and raw emotion. Colonial Williamsburg finally did it, right? After decades and decades of advisors saying like, you need emotion. They now have first person interpreters who, who are themselves performing as ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. That's what ghosts are. They're dead people who come back. So you, you have emotion, you have ghosts, and it is too much. They, they hit it so hard that it becomes completely off-putting to their guests because it's just too much. So it's, it, it, again, it's, it's that sort of narrative thread of emotion and humanity that it starts off in one way and they really struggle with it. And then by the time they finally just hit that note, they hit it so hard within a context that's completely different from when the advisors first said emotion. Because there is this huge difference between 1940s Colonial Williamsburg and 1990s Colonial Williamsburg. And the big change is that in the 90s, Colonial Williamsburg does get more commercial. They're beginning to share commercial space with Bush Gardens. That changes the tone of the site completely, right? If you're, if you're saying come down for revolutionary fun and the interpretive staff is like, you need to take a serious hard look at enslavement, that's a real disjuncture, right? Those are two wildly different emotions. One of the things that uh, yeah, I found really interesting is uh, after the event, you cite a journalist who agrees that this was well done, but their objection is the performers, they're not really slaves. They don't know what this is like. They get to go home and go to their own beds tonight, unlike the people this happened to, and they find it inappropriate in a way because it didn't go far enough, which is interesting. But another thing that really hit me as I was reading that section of the chapter was, I know you and I have spoken before about Tia Miles' book on ghost tourism and how it reflect it essentially marginalizes discussion of slavery at a lot of historic sites by pushing all of the slave discussion of slave narratives and so on into ghost stories. And it seems like this was what you could argue was a better way to do it. But even this was hitting people wrong. You know, there's, there's a real delicate balance here where you don't want to marginalize or turn it into fun, but at the same time, you don't necessarily want to dunk the audience wholeheartedly into the horrors of it. Like you've got to work your way into it. And it was just an interesting contrast to me, I guess. Yeah. There's a famous public history book. It's by Anne Horton. It's called The Tough Stuff of Public History. And most of the book is a a collection of essays about the difficulty of interpreting enslavement to an American audience. Because there is, there's so many years of ignoring it and so many years of making it seem like it was in some way okay or not recognizing the humanity of enslaved folks that the impulse that feels right is this huge overcorrection of like not preparing folks in the way that they needed to to see sort of a real raw presentation of enslavement in a really within the same square mile where they just got a slushy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I genuinely think that if Colonial Williamsburg put even that same performance today, I don't think it would get the pushback that it did. Uh, but I think in the 1990s, you're still at this point where many Americans haven't really learned a lot about enslavement or haven't learned the historically accurate story. 
there's a lot of jarring happening that I think people just were not prepared for. And I, I, I can't say that the performance was wrongheaded because I think that like sometimes you need band-aids just like ripped off and you're like, you're going to take a lot of hair. You're going to take a lot of hair with that band-aid. But once it's off, it's like, all right, this is, this is what we're talking about. And I, and I think that that's, essentially, I, I think that that's what that performance did. Like though it was not done again, I think that it really created for Colonial Williamsburg a recognition that they were holding back. All interpretations of enslaved life have that sort of specter of that performance in it that says, you know, we're going to have a dramatic scene where there two enslaved people are going to talk about someone being beaten, but you're not going to see it. But there's that idea that the interpreters at Colonial Williamsburg are, are ready. Like, they'll show you. They will, they will inform you. They will let you know. But they're going to take it easy now. Though it was a very, very intense moment, I think it was necessary because it, it showed what they were capable. They're like, we can show you everything. But if you're not ready, just know that it's there. Mm-hmm. The seal is yeah, broken. It's very, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. And they can call back to it, right? When, when people are like, well, you don't, you don't show slavery the, the way it actually was. They did. Mm-hmm. Once, it didn't go well. So what they have now is still like the, 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 the performances that they offer subsequently after 94 and even today are still emotional. There's still dramatic scenes. There's still a sense of this lingering violence that is so central to the maintenance of slavery, but you don't see it. But the, the possibility is still there. And they, they do a good job with that of sort of maintaining that vibe that people can pick up that says like, this is a medium scene, but it, 10 exists. We're just not going to show you 10 because mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of an, an, an interesting scene for understanding how emotion has been n- negotiated at the site because that's the key. It's humans and emotion. And then when you put that in the 18th century, you've got a lot to deal with. Yeah, I should say for anybody who's listening and you know wondering why we're not talking more about ghost folklore, it's because this background's absolutely vital to understanding that type of folklore mm-hmm. at a historic site. So we'll we'll get back around yeah. to that. But before we change subjects, I wanted to, I, I had not heard about this before I read your book, but you discuss Carter's Grove, which ties directly into this and yeah. is both disturbing and fascinating. It seems like it started with good intentions, wanting to create a place where you could more fully explore issues of slavery and how this was essentially the labor force of plantations. But it was like a uh, a pre-internet form of a Twitter thread in that it mm. seemed to quickly become something much, frankly, grosser. Yeah, yeah. So Carter's Grove was a former plantation. It's about eight miles away from the downtown that Colonial Williamsburg bought and then did extensive archaeology on the site. And what they decided to do with it was to take some of that archaeological information and recreate where the enslaved people of that plantation lived. So create enslaved people's dwellings. And what this allowed Colonial Williamsburg to do was to tell a more rural story of enslavement and a more intimate one. So now it's not just enslaved folks in the city talking in the kitchens, talking out back in the yard. It is now in their homes, in their intimate spaces. It's in stable spaces because they're enslaved, but still intimate spaces. And 
the possibility here is just buzzing with excitement. The interpreters are jazzed, right? They're all for this. They're like, we can tell the stories of families and we can tell the stories of what joy people had, right? That sort of what, what can you do in a horrible situation to make life beautiful? They can talk about sort of traditions and music. The interpreters who walked into this project are elated. They're so excited to get to have a site where they can talk exclusively about enslaved life as humans, as workers, as people who are living in unimaginable conditions. So it has this, this possibility of being a really informative and beautiful and challenging space. And like you said, yeah, it is like all the bad stuff about the internet happened face to face. So white guests came to this spot and they would call the interpreters demeaning names. They would ask them to like pose in the field and pretend like they're picking cotton. They would call them Aunt Jemima. Like all of the things that shatter your teeth, just, oh my God, why? So there's a lot of just really, really inappropriate, rude, hurtful interactions with the guests that they don't do to interpreters in the, the restored city. So you you have this moment, again, where there's one interpretation of emotion that is somehow not coming across, or the guests are more attached to their ignorance than they are interested in connecting with other humans. And it, it becomes the one of the worst places to work at because it's it's isolated. And so many of the guests just talk so ugly to the interpreters. It just becomes horrible. No, nobody wants to work there. There's stories about guests just being verbally abusive and it completely derails this whole project. And even the interpreters who are going into this, there's accounts where, where they talk about how excited they are to perform as enslaved people and they talk about how part of this, they hope, is going to connect them on a spiritual level with people who they see as their descendants, so the sort of broader people that they came from, that they can connect on a spiritual, on a soul level. And it does not function that way because of the inappropriate actions of the guests. I think the, the Carter's Grove story and the Austin story illustrate, again, the complexity of human emotion, because you, you have emotions so significant for sort of understanding on a human level, the past. And it's vital for these recreated spaces for, for people to understand why you'd go to this spot. Why do you go to a place that looks like the past? You go there to connect to people, a, a shared sense of placefulness. And we see it just absolutely shattered by, in one situation, sort of fear. Fear that Colonial Williamsburg can't treat something so delicate, something so raw in an appropriate manner. And in the other situation, it's, it's just ruined by hateful ignorance. One of the things that I found really interesting about the Carter's Grove situation, I mean, the whole thing really just comes off as very disgusting. But one thing that I've noticed in a lot of supernatural folklore that deals with slavery in the U.S. especially is that it's often framed in a way where we can say, OK, well, that's that person and they were really bad not like me. Mm -hmm. So Madame LaLaurie in New Orleans, for example, is made out to be this really extremely monstrous person to the point that modern folklore literally paints her as a mad scientist. You've got a man named Jacob Cooley, who is alleged to have beat a slave who was a carpenter to death. And again, he's painted as this extraordinarily awful person. And so you would think from knowing that folklore, that something like Carter's Grove might encourage people to behave better. And yet 
they let out the fact that no they're really not that different from the people who get made into these monsters in the story yeah it's from from what i read of the primary source of that situation like it all sounds like a jordan peele movie it all, yeah. it, it all sounds like humans are the monsters after all because you're you're absolutely right there are shelves and shelves of folk stories where it's evil planter who eats the enslaved people there's this one guy and we we know him and he's a vampire and he's the baddie it makes the real stories of the physical abuses and assaults of slavery attributed to just like this one guy mm-hmm. and yet we see in modern 20th century times people doing that stuff being the mean guys with very little recognition that, you know, like that famous Mitchell and Webb meme, like, you're the baddies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing the bad thing. Two Nazis coming to the realization that maybe they're not the hero. (laughs) Yes. Are are we the bad guys here? (laughs) Yes. This, I think, comes into a question that I had for you, which is, you know, early in the book that for the majority of the stories that surrounded the older houses in Virginia, there was a need for the ghosts to be friendly. And similarly, you note that when the private ghost tours first start appearing, and I love the term that you quote from one of the directors as parasite tours, you note that in those, again, the ghost stories that are told tend to reinforce this very elite-centered, very white, and you know, in the 80s and 90s, politically conservative view of the past. And it makes me wonder, does the need for most of the ghosts that are said to haunt these old houses or haunt the streets of Williamsburg reflect a desire to kind of uncomplicate history, to remove the gray areas so that you can have a heroic story as opposed to one that's just, you know, much more human? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to play in the past if your only vision of the past is big dresses and heroic guys that's a much more sort of simple and a much more romantic thing to be able to play in. When we think about folks coming into these restored houses, if they're coming in with just this idea of the past being rather pleasant with a little bit of drama, you know, someone talking to a woman he shouldn't, with just that, it's a lot easier for for people to sort of imagine themselves as characters within a drama or in like a Bridgerton, right? It's a lot easier for them to play in the past than it is if they were to have a deeper understanding of the realities of it. In in most cases, a lot of the older ghost stories, these sort of legacy ghost stories, they might hint at something difficult. Like the, the, the stories of Lucy Ludwell talk about her being locked away in the mental asylum, but it's not getting at sort of the practice of silencing women by accusing them of mental instability and putting them in asylums, which is a practice, right? That that, that happened. But the stories never sort of dig into that. They just touch on like spooky, scary asylums, right? So they're in that way sort of furthering this idea, this sort of demonization of people with mental issues instead of doing what we 21st century people would do, which is think a bit more critically about it and again, come at it person to person. So yeah, the, the stories, they're not trying to complicate anything. It's heroic guys, it's women in big dresses and one crazy lady. You got to throw that in there and that's it, right? There's no deeper meaning. And if that's all you know, then that's, then that's fun, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. why historical dramas on TV are so popular. They often don't really dig into a lot of stuff. 
often why they're called costume dramas because it's about the costumes. It's much more focused on the pretty dresses. It's much more focused on the setting, right? And Colonial Williamsburg has that. Like I said earlier, you, you can go to Colonial Williamsburg in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that definitely still exists is pretty dresses, pretty interiors, pretty gardens. You can do it from a very sort of consumer vision where you're just looking at stuff that you might want to have in your house or a dress you wish you could try on, stuff like that. And and the early ghost stories definitely create that possibility. And I think that for many of the folks who started those ghost stories in their own homes, that's exactly what they were trying to do. They're trying to say, I keep this house in such great shape that the party goers from the 18th century are still here. In a way, I get to play in the 18th century. I get to go to this 18th century party. I, I'm thinking of uh, some of the stories you share about the wife house where, well, there's the stories are unpleasant in a way you've got wife himself having been murdered you've got the woman who allegedly killed herself by jumping from the uh stairs while the stories aren't necessarily pleasant they definitely spoke to a very kind of simple narrative of the gentry and the idea that you know they're still here because this is where they want to be and them being here means that this place is genuinely historic. And more than that, it is part of the past. Yeah, it was such an important place to them in their lives, either so comfortable or so dramatic that they stayed, that you live in the fog of the past. Yeah, and it's, that's a big part of it, is, is to be able to say as a present day person that, that you have such an intimate relationship with the past because of the existence of these ghosts who have chosen to be in the property that you also have chosen to be in. So now you have good taste, right? It's a lot of that. Like That's what the stories are doing. They're dressing up the house in the same way that period tables and chairs and fabrics on the sofa do. It makes me think of uh, folks I know who are members of the Society for Creative Anachronism, where it's sort of a mishmash of medieval stuff. The exception being that the people who are part of that group are very open that they're romanticizing it. They're not trying to hide that fact. You know, they're, yeah, they'll, they'll flat out tell you that, but it seems like it's a very similar type of exercise. The most significant difference is whether or not you're recognizing that it's play. If you know that it's play, if you're just like, I like this hat and also this armor, and I think they look good on me and I'm doing it. That's a huge difference than if you're creating ghost stories and sort of romanticizing the past to a point that you're able to confidently say like, well, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. If you're not looking at something, if, if you're just focusing on sort of this imaginary world, you can claim this kind of innocence within your own privilege of like, oh, well, I, I had only experienced the 18th century through the interior decor and the party and the ghost stories. So it, it becomes sort of part of this larger bag of like lost cause nonsense that's sort of maintaining that really absurd understanding of the 18th century and even 19th century enslavement. You know, something that you don't discuss in the book, but you mentioned the lost cause, and this gets me thinking about this. The historical restoration movement begins, as you know, in the early 19th century or the first half of the 19th century, perhaps is a better way of putting it. But it seems like groups such as the old home biographers that you describe in the book, which for listeners are people who would go to houses, document a lot about the houses and then talk about its significance historically, often through the use of ghost stories. But it seems like that picks up around the same time that you get a lot of the shifting in the narrative of the Civil War, even in the North, where people stop talking about it 
in terms of slavery, even though the Articles of Secession drafted by many of the states are very clear that this was about slavery and start talking about it in terms of, well, you know, it's states' rights or it's economic differences while ignoring that the economic differences is that the labor pool came from slavery. <laughs> and I've got to wonder is, uh, are things like the old home biographers and the way that the restoration movement developed, how do they fit in with the development of the idea of the lost cause and this reshaping of the narrative of the civil war? I think that it's absolutely related. So this isn't in the book because it didn't fit in right. Right. But there is a, it's a ghost story. It's called Red Rock. This story centers on a Virginia family and they have been on this property since the 17th century and they have a patriarch and this patriarch comes from England and him and his love were on opposite sides of the English Civil War. So they come into the New World and they set up a plantation and they get into a conflict with Native Americans and the, the Native Americans then kill the patriarch's wife and child. I guess he has other ones. Then the patriarch kills this Native American on this rock that becomes red rock. Like he kills him and then his blood stains the rock. And that is not touched. <laughs> That's like, that story gets moved on. So it takes you into the author's contemporary day after the Civil War. And this family who had owned this grand plantation is now on hard times and they have to sell. And they sell the plantation to their former white employees. So these poor whites now own the property of these elite legacy plantation family. And one of the things that these poor white reconstruction New South guys want to do is pave over the graveyard and start industrializing. And one of the descendants comes and has this big scene in front of this huge glaring painting of patriarch. And in this scene, he is both the descendant and the ghost of the patriarch. And he's telling the new owners that like him and his family are going to return to this land, the contemporary people and the past people and they better watch out right and there are stories like that being written after the civil war all the time there are these dramatic stories where planters are oppressed after reconstruction they they no longer have money because they can't depend on enslaved labor they're supposed to be very sympathetic stories right where you feel bad for the place that they lost. And they're written in this way that it's very reminiscent of sort of the knights and princesses of England, right? So they're they're Americans, so they're not princesses and things like that. But it's written in that kind of romantic style. And what that does is it creates this vision of the Reconstruction era, it creates this vision of the 19th century and the Revolutionary era that's very romantic. So you have these stories set in these very grand houses and people begin to look around. They're like, oh, we have these. We, 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 just, we can fix them up. And they're going to look just like they did for these characters in this book that they are now using to understand the past with. So it, it would be similar to if the popularity of the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, which took mm-hmm. place in Atlantic City in the 1920s, if that like sparked off a restoration project of Atlantic City to make it look like it did in the 20s. Because people want to experience the place from these fictional stories that they're now understanding as history. So like those Titanic exhibits, Mm -hmm. there's one in like Pigeon Forge and one in Branson where they kind of recreate the Titanic and then you can go check it out. And the reason they do that isn't because people got really, really into one of the largest disasters humans experienced in the the, the 20th century, but it's because of the movie. So I think that the popularity of restoring these plantation homes has a lot to do with that post-Civil War literature that taught readers to 
understand the plantation in really romantic terms rather than as the sites of enslaved labor that they were. But I, I think that that's a huge part of it. And I, I think that that really inspired people to restore these places to look like they did because they, they had an understanding of sort of what happened there. And it was very akin to sort of those romances of Europe, right? Those kings and queens and all that. The South became that lost empire, that equivalent, that people of means said like, well, yeah, let's, let's do that. That sounds great. I want that pretty stuff. Well, and you note in the book that even as late as the 50s and 60s, Bush Garden was doing a recreated but highly romanticized version of 18th and 19th century that they directly compared to European fairy tales. Yeah. Bush Garden's in Williamsburg is Europe themed. Their idea is that you travel to Europe at Bush Gardens and you travel back in time with Colonial Williamsburg. Because the idea is with with the way that Williamsburg is curated is an English colony, so it's kind of European too. I think in a way that brings us back around to the issue of W.A.R. Godwin and his use of ghost stories. You note in the book that in the 1930s, he was giving an address that was being broadcast on the radio in which he was very openly talking about ghost stories and the portions of it that you quote, he doesn't seem to be, you know, flat out saying, hey, guys, this place is haunted, but rather using the language somewhat ambiguously. So he could be saying that or he could just be saying it's kind of like you go back and talk to the ghost, but that yeah. this didn't seem to make strike anybody as at all strange or cause the uh, project to suffer. And going forward, it seemed that the use of ghost stories by outside tour companies didn't particularly damage how people viewed Colonial Williamsburg, although, as you know, it might cause them to have a much more simplified view of what it was like there than what it really was. But that the management was very reluctant to have anything to do with these stories until it seems the 1990s. Do I have that correct? Yeah. And you talk about their first try in the book at creating any sort of ghost tourism, which I, I absolutely understand why it didn't catch on. Although I've got to say, I would love to go to one of these things because it sounds fascinating. Would you be willing to describe that a little bit? So Colonial Williamsburg is big, especially in the 90s. That's that's when they really got their biggest. There's two different sides to it. There's like an educate or there was an education side and like a marketing entertainment side that dealt with the hotels and the restaurants. And these private companies were bringing ghost tours through Colonial Williamsburg. And if listeners don't know, Colonial Williamsburg is the actual city of Williamsburg from the 18th century. They rehabbed all the buildings, most of the buildings, or recreated the ones that weren't there anymore. And all of these recreations and restorations are set along public roads. So private companies can just walk down the roads. They can't go in the buildings. They can't go off of property. Colonial Williamsburg, very firm about that. You can just run a tour in Williamsburg and benefit off of the restoration without contributing to the restoration, which is why they called them... The parasite tours? Yes. So yeah, there's private companies doing these tours. And they had been doing that since, since the 30s, but Colonial Williamsburg and the private companies had had sort of a, a soft agreement that if you're running tours through the restoration, offer the people tickets to go inside the buildings, like be sellers of tickets for us. And that worked for a really long time. And many of the people who ran tours then and today take it very seriously. They certainly don't have the resources that the Colonial Williamsburg staff does, but they, you know, they want to offer something that's just as authoritative as what you'd get from CW, right? That is not the case at night. All the rules go right out the window. So with the ghost tours, they're not 
living up to Colonial Williamsburg standards because Colonial Williamsburg standards did not include ghosts. It did not include this kind of oral history. It did not include this kind of folklore. So do whatever you want, right? You, you can make up stories as long as it's ghosty. Some of them are the old legacy stories you can find in archival records. Some are just would be a fun thing. So they're just making them up. The problem arises that A, they're extraordinarily popular, right? One of the things that's happening in Colonial Williamsburg in the 1990s is that folks are coming into town. They're staying in the Colonial Williamsburg hotels and they're not buying tickets to Colonial Williamsburg. They're just chilling at the pool and then going on night tours or chilling at the pool and going on the significantly cheaper walking tours that are done by the private companies. And that's a problem because again, there's this separation. There's the hospitality wing and they're doing fine. And it's the education part, the far more expensive part, that's saying no one's coming. And yet the city is filled with people. So we have this financial annoyance where the private companies are just so popular. And Colonial Williamsburg, it's like, we put so much effort into doing this and you're not, there's no kickback. And the other annoyance is that the people who'd go on the night tours or a percentage of them would go on the, the private ghost tours and then show up at Colonial Williamsburg with a Colonial Williamsburg ticket the next day, badgering the guides about these stories that are not true. Like, oh, I was on the ghost tour. They said so-and-so lived here. And the guides were like, no, um, that's not true. And then people really don't like when other people tell them that what they know is not true. So you get conflict, right? When some, oh, well, they they said she lived here and she died here. And the guide's like, no, that person never existed. Conflict, right? So now they're they're button heads with the guides. And so you, you have these two problems, right? And the solution is, okay, Colonial Williamsburg can do ghost stories, but they're going to do it Colonial Williamsburg style. So it has to be rooted in archival records and it's going to have that person-to-person emotion. So what you get are these tours that are very unlike ghost tours that you see in most cities. In most cities, you're in a group of like 10 to 30 and your guide might have a costume or they might have like goth makeup and a, a, a head-to-toe black outfit. But in most cases, they're holding a lantern with a little candle or an LED light in it. And you walk around the city uh, and they stop at certain places. They tell you a ghost story and you move on. And they tell you a ghost story the next lot, move on. What Colonial Williamsburg did is they're thinking, we're going to do this with archival documents and we're going to be the only ghost tour that goes inside of buildings. None of the other tours can do that. So that's their special thing, right? So what they end up doing is you get in these big groups and they bring you into the rooms in the buildings at night just super cool because uh, in most cases you don't get to see these rooms lit up by candlelight you just see them during the day so it's awesome but it's not what you expect it's not what other ghost tours are like so you walk in and they sit you down and then everything kind of goes quiet and then someone in a costume comes in and they tell you a ghost story that they would have found scary in the 18th century. And they're not about Williamsburg. Some are about Ireland, some are about England, some are about other colonies, but they're telling it to you convincingly scared way. And so there's still that spooky vibe that, that you want on a ghost tour, but it is hugely different from any kind of ghost tour I've ever been on. And I've been on quite a few in various different cities. So it's this really bizarre in comparison to other ghost tours because it is so different. And it's neat for what it is, because it's a different thing. But one of the things that it does is it separates the ghost stories from play. And a really important part of sort of the power of ghost stories is that plate. It's that you are standing in the room where the ghost of so-and-so is known to haunt, or you're standing outside of the building at night where the woman walks the third floor and you can see her through the windows, right? There's a lot of mystery to it, but it's play space. And in this effort to be 
authoritative. And to get stories that are in the archive and that are from the 18th century, it separates that placefulness. It still has emotion. It still ghosts. You get to see the buildings in a new way. It's super cool, but it's very, very different. And they're still getting outsold by the private tours because the private tours are offering what people expect, which is walking, pointing at dark buildings, being told the ghosts are here, right? So it's going to take them some time before they start developing the kind of ghost tour that people are expecting. And it's not going to come out of the education department. It's going to come out of that hospitality wing. And it's the tavern ghost tours because there's a number of taverns in Williamsburg. So the hospitality wing starts putting on these ghost tours that are what you think, right? They're going from tavern to tavern, learning stories about the ghosts that haunt that or just some sort of dramatic tale that is known for that place. And guests love that. They love it because it's Colonial Williamsburg. So they tr there's the element of trust. And it is that kind of ghost tour that they expect. It's much more friendly in it, in a way. It's It's not a performance. You're still in a group of people in most ghost tours. You can mm -hmm. talk to your friends the whole time. So it still has that sort of fun element that you don't really get in the much sort of more serious Ghost Amongst Us tours. It, it seems like the standard ghost tour, and I've been on a few myself, it, it's like a form of extension. You know, you're not simply hearing the story, you're in the place where it happened. Whereas the Ghost Among Us tour seems much more like a very weird version of a campfire story. Yeah. Yes, but but still separated, right? Because even yeah. in the campfire story, it's you're in the woods where the kids are making out and the guy with the mm -hmm. hook came and got them. But this is you're at a campfire in California telling stories about something that happened in Denver. Right, which I've done, but you know. <laughs> it's still fun. Yeah, and it, it goes from that to eventually these what are called spectaculars, yes. which sound just absolutely outrageous to me. And I don't mean outrageous in a bad way, just they just sound so astoundingly weird. In the 2010s, they began Halloween spectaculars. And once the Halloween spectaculars caught on, the issue of like, are we really going to do ghost tours? No one's talking about that anymore. And they still do it. They, they like close down the city. You got to take a special bus into the city. And on the first one, you get out the bus and you're greeted by a person in character who's Blackbeard, right? For those who don't know, Blackbeard's crew was tried in Williamsburg. And I think his head visited the city a bit after it was removed from his body. There's a, a light Blackbeard tie and he has taken the city of Williamsburg and he wants to share the bounty. The children are encouraged to go house to house and collect the loot. And so that the kids get to knock and trick or treat at the houses in the restored area and later in the evening blackbeard's zombie now now they're zombies blackbeard's zombie crew comes back to life and this is for the teens and the older people and it's kind of like they're parading through and they're going to get you right ah. everyone's in costume they paint the horses which people fell in love with because there's a lot of animals a lot of heritage animals so they're like bred in a certain way so they're like this is our special pigs and our special horses they found a non-toxic safe paint and they painted the horses to look like skeletons and people lost their minds they were like this is the greatest thing in the world and it is very cute and it was a hugely successful event and it was a big gamble because again colonial williamsburg of the later 20th century and the 21st century has a, had a really difficult time balancing its entertainmentiness with their beginning to embrace in the 90s and their seriousness. And one of the things that they begin to develop or this realization, and, and many museums have this as well, is that you can be fun for an event. Mm -hmm. And Colonia Williamsburg hit that hard. They're like, we are going to go all out an imagined premise. Blackbeard's pirates were never zombies. They never took over Williamsburg, but it's this fun event. And they put skeletons everywhere and little hay bales and pumpkins, and they're just doing Halloween. 
it is something that the colonial Williamsburg folks of the 30s and 40s would like cry. If you could bring them back to life and say, look what's happening here, they would be like, this is horrible. Like they would be so upset because it's a completely different vision than what they thought about, but they're dead and Williamsburg is different. So the, the issue of, of whether or not you talk about ghosts is a non-issue now because the institution has sort of learned to balance emotional fun and emotional depth in a way that they had not done for most of the 20th century. And it's really all about siloing, right? Mm -hmm. You have your fun stuff for Halloween and they had done Christmas for years. Uh, and most museums do. Most museums that are house museums or lifestyle museums within the United States do a Victorian style Christmas, no matter what they are curated to or what time period they are curated to the rest of the year, their Christmas is distinctly Victorian. And Williamsburg's is. There are some elements that kind of look like the 18th century, but it's Victorian Christmas. And they learned that they, they could do that because it's just Christmas. And they did the same thing with Halloween. They're like, we can go as crazy as we want just for Halloween. So in these years, they've still had Black Year, but they've added a witch. So it's a sea witch. And at the end of the night, on the grown-up night, they inflate this huge tentacle monster over the Capitol. And it has these big googly eyes. And it's, oh, it's just the weirdest thing you'll ever see at Williamsburg, if you if you know Colonial Williamsburg's history, which is being very sort of tight laced, very tight ties, trying to be very serious. And now there's a wacky waving inflatable arm flailing sea monster, but it's just for Halloween. The way I understand it is it's a part of this effort and this longer story of trying to make the place significant and make that significance palpable and easily consumable immediately, right? Mm -hmm. For the children who go to Colonial Williamsburg for trick-or-treating, they now know this is a special place. They now know it's cool. They know people are dressed up. They're dressed up. That's great. There's many, many women my age and a little bit older who have a huge soft spot for Colonial Williamsburg because of Felicity, the American Girl doll who was set in Williamsburg. I feel like someone needs to tell Colonia Williamsburg that there is a subset of millennial women who are really into what they got. I feel like they're not hitting the Felicity drum hard enough, but that's a thing, like, because you get them when they're kids and they understand this place is special for the Halloween reason or for the Felicity reason. And then they come back when they're older and they get a new meaning, right? They are now getting depth. They are now getting a much more nuanced interpretation of the past. And I think that it that sort of story of Colonia Williamsburg trying to find emotion and trying to make the significance of place accessible really sort of comes to ahead with this story because it is children focused and it's fun and it's silly and it makes Williamsburg important to people. Well, and it gives people a connection to the place as well. It's not simply yeah. that's where the archaeologists and historians hang out, but rather I have fond memories of this location. Yeah, yeah. And then when they come back, <laughs> and Colonial mm -hmm. Williamsburg wants them to come back, when they come back and they're older, and they're like, oh, so you restored all this? And you can go talk to the archaeologists, and they're building that new archaeology center. And now this place that you thought was fun as a kid, it has depth, and it has its own history. And it's neat. You, and you mentioned the Felicity doll, which is part of the American Girl series. And I, I think it kind of gets to an idea that there's a lot of different ways that Colonial Williamsburg could create this human connection. Yeah, you mentioned that. You talk about the immersive theatrical experiences that they would do. Ghost stories are obviously one that's a recurring theme. And you note towards the end of the book that they are beginning to take that more seriously, but also that this is happening at the same time that they're saying the restoration is complete and their ties to professional organizations dedicated to restoration 
while not severed, are less important and less intense than they once were. Mm-hmm. How does that interplay? For that part of the book, my foot goes directly in my mouth. When I wrote that, Colonial Williamsburg had distanced themselves from the institution at William and Mary that is this Center for Early American History. And then while my book was in its last editing phase, they re-engaged that relationship. So they're doing something now. And it happened so quickly. So that's mm-hmm. like one of the biggest bummers about academic books is it takes so long. And about writing as a historian of the 20th century, leaking into the 21st, some of the things I say become out of date. And that's one of them. Because now Williamsburg is opening up this state-of-the-art archaeology lab. And they had like clear-cut their archaeology department in, I think, the late 90s. They just, or late, late 90s? early 2000s they gutted it and like broke apart these sort of staple research departments and threw them all into one and fired a lot of people or pushed them out and they severed the relationship with Omohundro and while I was in the process of writing it they got back together and now this archaeology lab is developing so I have no clue what Colonial Williamsburg is doing now because they're changing they're slow at change but once they do it zoop it changes up. So it seems those two signs of re-engaging that relationship with the, with the Omohundro, this new archaeology lab, says that, you know, they're doing something, beginning to, I guess, rebalance their education and their and their entertainment. And there's plenty of institutions that do that. And so I, I think that they're sort of returning to that balance. Like if you look at um, Eastern State Penitentiary in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, they have these huge haunted house events. And they then use that funds, keep the, the museum afloat, and to be able to tell these really hard-hitting, critical histories about the prison and about contemporary incarceration. And they're getting the funds to do it with these spectaculars. And I, I suspect that that might be a similar situation that's happening in Williamsburg, is that they're, that they're also saying like, okay, let's re-engage with this real serious academic tone at the same time that we're still offering the spectaculars as a historian and as a person living in the 21st century. I tend to think that that's kind of like a 21st century thing is that you can do both. Mm-hmm. And in not just in, in museums, but so many things about 21st century American culture, it's both. If you are sort of breaking down the limitations, breaking down dichotomies and finding a way to like live in a duality or, or a triality. It's going to be interesting. Colonial Williamsburg is going to turn 100 next decade. So it's really interesting to see what it's going to be then. And I don't know. You discuss frequently in the book that Colonial Williamsburg wanted to see itself as being this very serious, essentially non-emotional thing, mm-hmm. and that it wanted to instill patriotism. Do you get the impression that they understood that these are two very different goals? No, I don't I don't think that they saw it as different because their vision of patriotism isn't one that you love America because it's your country. Mm-hmm. Their vision was you you love America because you understand the importance of democracy. So it's still a very sort of factual thing. Like democracy is good. It is better than monarchy. It is better than communism. Know these facts. So for them, their version of patriotism is informed. It is factual. It is hard. And it's just the truth. Democracy is what you need to hold dear. And that's why you're patriotic. Rather than sort of a flag waving, like, I love the stars and stripes. Colonial Williamsburg wanted people to love the United States or have be faithful to or be patriotic because of democracy. That's the, the reason. So they didn't see that as an emotional thing. Them's are the fact. You also discussed the dismissal by a lot of the historians and archaeologists in the 30s and 40s of the old home biographers as being, they think the term is little old ladies and tennis shoes. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's the old home biographers, and it's mm -hmm. also the sort of people who originally did early restoration work, and mm -hmm. and a lot of it were these sort of elite ladies, the women who live very comfortably, and they're doing volunteer work, and that's a lot of the early interpretation, some preservation that was done at historical sites were these volunteer ladies. And these volunteer ladies were getting a lot of their information from these old home biography books because that's mm -hmm. what was available to them. And frankly, that's what their friends were writing. So yeah, if you're if you're restoring a house and Edith comes by and Edith has done all this research, like you're going to use Edith's book. They're very much sort of the same crowd. And yeah, they the the professionals were like, you don't know what you're doing. You're you haven't been trained in this. You're you're not taking measurements. You're just describing stuff. Where are your sources? You're just talking to people. So again, it's this huge divide between sort of this uh, academically informed trained professional and what we would today call more like oral history and mm -hmm. memory and folklore. And yet when the professionals needed somebody to interface with the public, they turned to the little old ladies in tennis shoes. Yeah. Yeah. The irony of that just kept hitting me. <laughs> mm -hmm. They wanted women who would welcome people into the homes as if they were the governor's wife. So they, they want that feminine appeal but they don't want any kind of feminine knowledge or feminized knowledge. Which, uh, you know, is a very pre-World War II, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Which gets back to the old uh, thing about, well, this needs to be factual, not emotional. I mean, it, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a huge, like the, the it's just contradiction city. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, as I'm reading the book, I just kept thinking, you guys do realize that. <laughs> And of course, they're all <laughs> yeah. dead now, so I can't talk to them unless, of course, they're yeah. still haunting the streets of w Williamsburg, which case I guess go. I could go and do that. I'm a big proponent of writing new ghost stories. So I, I think the, the new ghost stories we should write are the 20th century people of, of Williamsburg. Like there, there, there needs to be a story of an architect, 1930s historical architect who's like disappointed in something. There, there needs to be a story where, where someone's like, and then Fisk Kimball he, you can hear him groaning because he doesn't like the way that these two trusses are put together. I went into the house and there was a middle-aged woman there who just kept, you know, dismissing my level of education. And when I checked <laughs> later, there was nobody on duty that day. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a woman in there and she asked me why I thought wearing shorts would be appropriate yeah. for a woman <laughs> my age. I'm like, oh yeah, that's Belinda. She's been dead for 30 years. Are you familiar with a historian named Finucane or Finucane? Oh yeah. I know an R.C. Finucane. He's like ghost history. One of the things that I kept thinking about in reading your discussion of what you called the age of ghosts was his focus on the way that ghosts are used throughout history and that Victorian people in England would often use the presence of a ghost as a marker of their solid middle-class status. And this just seemed to fit very nicely with your description mm -hmm. of late 19th century Virginians. There's even newspaper articles from Richmond that sort of poke fun at the idea saying that like, ah, these middle-class people buying plantations and thinking they have a legacy here are so foolish that they're going to buy little bottles of ghosts and say that they're ancestors. There's a writer you cite, L.B. Taylor. Would you be willing to mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about L.B. Taylor. Yes. So L.B. Taylor, he passed away, I believe in 2014, but he was a retired PR guy who in his retirement got really into writing like little, re little research books, like those little, um, what I call like airplane books, Arcadia and History Press, mm -hmm. those little thin ones you buy before you take a trip. He'd write these about all kinds of stuff. 
like the nuclear policies and like robberies and all kinds of stuff. And his publisher asked him to write one about ghost stories. And he's like, fine. So he picks ghost stories from all over the nation. And one of those ghost stories is from Williamsburg, which is where he was living. And he's like, let's do more of this because he can grew up in Virginia. So he had a memory of ghost stories. And so he sets out to write a book about Williamsburg's ghost stories. And the first place he goes is Colonial Williamsburg. And he tries to get the guides and the docents to tell him ghost stories. And they are not having it. They're like, no, we're not going to talk about ghost stories. That's not what we do here. This is all happening in the 1980s. So what he does is he goes into the archives. And he finds New Deal era WPA records, Federal Writers Project records in the Federal Archives, in the archives in Richmond, in the archives at James Madison and UVA and all of these local libraries. He starts buying older books, those old home biographer books. There's an earlier author from the 1930s, Marguerite Dupont Lee, who wrote about Virginia ghosts in the 20s. And so he picks her book up and he puts together this Ghosts of Williamsburg book. It's small, but it becomes wildly popular. And he's self-published and he's self-printing and he's self-delivering. So him and his wife, who's drawing for the images and the covers, they're sending these books to bookstores and libraries and people are eating them up. The libraries need multiple copies because they're getting worn out. People in different states are hearing about this book and writing him letters, please send me a copy of this book. And so he starts writing larger books. He writes 14 books in total, each of them coming in at about 200 pages filled with Virginia ghost stories. And he becomes, he's Mr. Virginia ghost stories. And by the 2000s, historical sites that had previously said, we don't have ghosts here and we don't talk about ghosts. They're inviting him to come talk to their Halloween lecture series. They're like, oh yeah, we love ghosts. We're all really into ghosts. And what this amounts to is it's really Taylor who brings the tradition of telling ghost stories and consuming ghost stories back to Virginia. The There's one private tour in Williamsburg that legally can claim that they are based off of L.B. Taylor's stories, but all of them do. I wouldn't believe for a second that there are ghost tours in Williamsburg that do not benefit from L.B. Taylor's books because he did the legwork. He went to all these archives, and then I went to him, to find these ghost stories and put them in a book. And he, he didn't cite things in the way that historians would with footnotes, so it's all narrative. So he would begin a story of like, I was up in Blacksburg, and I found this story in the university's archive. And I'd be like, okay, so he's in Blackbird. That's that's Virginia Tech. And they said it was in the, the folklore file. And of course, the libraries don't have finding aids for these things, but he's leaving little trails. So it's far easier to use the story from the book. And it is while he is making these books that ghost tourism kicks off in Virginia. So that, that there's no doubt in my mind that his books are the foundation to the vast majority of ghost tours in Virginia, especially Williamsburg, even though one can claim it, they're all using L.B. Taylor stories. Well, I know you've got other matters you need to attend to, and I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show again. No problem. Thank you for, for, for having me on. It's, it's always a great time to talk to you, to talk about ghost eating. Great. Thank you very much. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. 
You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spoo!